You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. How did a libertine who lacks even the most basic knowledge of the Christian faith win 81% of the white evangelical vote in 2016? And why have white evangelicals become a presidential reprobate's staunchest supporters? These are among the questions acclaimed historian Kristen Cobes Dumez asks in Jesus and John Wayne, which explains how white evangelicals have brought us to our fractured political moment. Jesus and John Wayne is a sweeping account of the last 75 years of white evangelicalism, showing how American evangelicals have worked for decades to replace the Jesus of the Gospels with an idol of rugged masculinity and Christian nationalism. Evangelical popular culture is teeming with muscular heroes, mythical warriors, and rugged soldiers, men like Oliver North, Ronald Reagan, Mel Gibson, and the Duck Dynasty clan who assert white masculine power in defense of Christian America. Chief among these evangelical legends is John Wayne, an icon of a lost time when men were uncowed by political correctness, unafraid to tell it like it was, and did what needed to be done. A much-needed re-examination, Jesus and John Wayne explains why evangelicals have rallied behind the least Christian president in American history, and how they have transformed their faith in the process with enduring consequences for all of us. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 372 of this podcast. Today is Easter Sunday. Now, there's a part of me, I'll just say at the outset, a part of me that it's not sure I should be recording this episode right now for a couple reasons. One, I slept terribly last night. So be it known on the front end, I tossed and I turned all night. I started feeling not so great yesterday morning, and I think I must have a cold or something. But did not feel well last night when we went to bed. We finished up watching... Back to the Future for the first time with our kids. Of course, Lauren and I had seen it, but it had been a long time. Our kids had never seen it. And I thought I was feeling, you know, not the best before the movie and during the movie. And then once the movie was over and I got up, I'm just like, wow, I just, whew, not feeling so hot at all. And so I went straight away to bed. I don't even think I waited for all the kids to be in bed for Lauren to be all settled. I just made a beeline. I needed something to drink, needed some water, and then I was out. But that is to say, too, I am not feeling the best this morning. I did not sleep the best last night. And also, it's Easter, right? It's Easter Sunday, and there's a part of me that thinks we should be talking about Easter specifically. But You know, this really is important. This is important family business if my Christianity, your Christianity, is not actually according to the gospel. If we're believing in a false gospel, and if we are living out that 
belief in a false gospel in a way that doesn't honor God, in a way that doesn't enjoy the grace and the blessing of Christ's atoning sacrifice, the resurrection that we celebrate today, if that is the charge leveled at us, that we have corrupted our faith and fractured this country, well then, I for one need to address that before I can just go straight into celebrating. Now, I'll say also on the front end, before we talk about more of the substance of Jesus and John Wayne, which I just finished yesterday, which is also part of why I really feel like I need to do this book review today while it's all fresh. According to Audible, listeners also enjoyed The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr, The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Ray Gregoire. I think I'm saying that right. The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. I've heard of that one. The Power Worshippers by Catherine Stewart. Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by Amy Bird. Also, White Evangelical Racism by Anthea Butler. So as you can tell, the political spectrum has us on the one end, or certainly me in any event, on the one end, as a conservative, unabashedly, admittedly, I am theologically conservative, I am politically conservative, I am socially conservative. I wouldn't say that I'm the most conservative of anybody. There are probably people to the right of me, but I am pretty far right when you think of it as a spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, clearly, is Kristen Cobez Dumez. She is, I should tell you, a professor at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She is supposedly a historian, but also teaches gender studies. So if that gives you any idea, if that gives you any indication, that is where she's coming from. She's got one other book that I was able to find published by her. It is not available on Audible, but I did find it at Amazon. And it's a weird deal. It's it's a weird title. <laughs> uh, it seems to embed within its title alone uh, a lot of warning signs. We'll put it that way. Her other work from 2015 is titled A New Gospel for Women. Let me say that again. A New Gospel for Women. <clears throat> Anytime you hear the phrase new gospel, uh, you should be on the alert for heresy. Uh, let me just tell you, uh, like pro tip, the original gospel didn't change. It hasn't been refreshed. God hasn't changed. So if you've got a new gospel, it is a false gospel. So what will follow is going to be false teaching. But nevertheless, a new gospel for women, Catherine Bushnell and the challenge of Christian feminism. So that is to say, 
Kristen Cobas Dumez is a feminist. She thinks of herself as a Christian feminist, and she writes Jesus and John Wayne accordingly. Now, a couple of things I need explained and unpacked a little bit on the front end. First, probably the best book review I have ever read was a book review at the American Reformer of this book, of Jesus and John Wayne. I believe the title of that book review is Jesus and John Wayne Among the Deplorables. That's not the title of the book. That's the title of the book review. You should definitely go back and check out my episode from a month ago today. I just recently sent it to a friend who was asking me if I have recorded anything, if I've put out any podcasts on the topic of toxic masculinity. And it just so happens that one month ago today, I published Toxic Masculinity, Patriarchy, and Deconstruction, which was an episode basically dealing with the review of this book, which is kind of weird because it's like I'm reviewing the review of the book, which is itself a review of the past 75 years of white evangelicalism in America. Uh, if you could follow that, it's, you know, chunk, 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 uh, a little messy maybe. So I sent that to him, and you can go back and you can listen to that episode where I talk about, uh, you know, specifically the review that I think was really, really good, and it got me interested in reading this book to begin with myself. But one of the important items to remember in reading a book like this or hearing claims being made like this is that people are not inherently good. That goes for the people who are the subjects of this book, Jesus and John Wayne. Jesus was perfect. Insofar as the topic subject of this book is Jesus. Jesus was perfect. John Wayne definitely was not. And none of the leading evangelical voices of the past 75 years have been perfect. And when I say not perfect, what I mean is they all have had a sinful nature. They have all sinned. They have all said things that they ought not to have said, done things that they ought not to have done and failed to say things that they ought to have said, and failed to do things that they ought to have done. And so if the goal in this is to establish that premise, consider it established. You will brook no disagreement with me in the general assertion that white evangelical Christianity in America for the past 75 years... For that matter, church history for the past 2,000 years has been filled with imperfect specimens of devotion to God. Consider that established. Now, from there, we come to a fork in the road. It's at least bipolar or binary, but it might have three different paths we could take. When we come to the particulars of what is alleged to have been the misdeed of an individual or a movement, or what is said to have been the characteristic of the past 75 years of conservative Christians in America. You have legitimate 
complaints where evangelicals held those people accountable. It came out that so-and-so was misbehaving and they're no longer in a position of power and authority. Okay, so that's the first category. First category is we totally agree that is absolutely unacceptable. We do not tolerate that. That will have to be apologized for, repented of, and even so, it might mean that this person is just not a leader anymore. They are not qualified. They have disqualified themselves. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a Christian, that they're not going to heaven, but they are not qualified to be a leader. They are defrocked. So that's the first category. Real, actual sins that we agree are sins. The accusation is leveled. And we were saying that's a sin. We don't accept that before the progressive left was, but they want to act like there's some big cover-up conspiracy Anytime somebody on our side of the theological debate or the political divide makes a mistake. There are, all, there are always going to be sinful responses to sin, just like you're always going to have sin to respond to either appropriately or sinfully. So you're going to find not only the initial misbehavior, misdeed, misconduct, if you look at finite human beings in, let's say, some big church or some big Christian organization, some big political action committee for conservatives, you will find the initial sin and you will also find, I guarantee it, individuals within the movement who are tempted to cover it up, minimize it, downplay it, sweep it under the rug in the interest of the movement, the ministry, whatever, and you will find people giving in to those temptations. Anywhere you'll find temptation to sin, you will find some people giving in more or less to the temptation to sin, either through sins of omission or sins of commission. Sins they commit or good deeds that they were supposed to do that they did not do. If anyone knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin, we read in the scriptures. But that's the first category. Accusations of sin and misconduct Excuse me, I've got a little sniffle. Like I said, I've got a cold. Accusations of sin and misconduct, which are genuine, which are real, which are not disputed. Now, the second category is questionable, right? These are things that were said and done, which you groan and you say, ah, I think that was in poor taste. I think that might have been rude and obnoxious and unnecessary. But is it sinful, what he said? No, it's just folly. That, that was a f foolish thing to say. That was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He shot himself in the, in the foot. It's not lethal, but that's going to leave a mark. And the left, very often, because it has rejected God's standard for morality and truth, the left very often conflates statements that they hate with hate speech or statements that they really, really dislike with sin. They've thrown out God's definition of what's true and good and beautiful objectively. And so sometimes they call some things that are very ugly beautiful. And sometimes they call things which are beautiful ugly. And sometimes they call things which are just meh, whatever they're feeling in the moment. And it's a motivist. So some of the things that are recounted in this book 
with the subtitle, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, some of the things recounted here I would put in the category of <sighs> arg, but not you're going to hell. Not this is a false gospel. That was a boneheaded thing to say, but not disqualifying and not sinful. In order for it to be sinful, there needs to be a clear, thus saith the Lord, sort of command, positive command that you disobeyed, or a prohibition from the Lord that you disregarded, and you did it anyways. You gave yourself license as if your authority trumps God's, which is satanic. If it's just a question of whether we like what that person said, whether we agree with it, whether our opinion matches how they chose to express themselves in that moment, that is not that is not rightfully belonging in the first category. That belongs in the second category. But the left gets those two categories confused very often. Now the third category, this is <laughs> this is difficult, right? And and this is what you've got to watch out for if you read Jesus and John Wayne. Because there's a negative association game being played here. And it, it really amounts to one giant ad hominem attack on not just the individuals listed, their scandals told, but white evangelicals as a whole. Like the whole kit and caboodle, white evangelicals stand accused. And we're going to tear down their character. Every white evangelical is guilty because we're looking at guilt collectively, which is the whole problem with the left, is they look at guilt and innocence collectively, and they can absolve whole categories of people of wrongdoing in their minds if they can cast those categories of people as oppressed or victims somehow, women, minorities, ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, gender minorities, as they say, as they think of it. And meanwhile, they can condemn whole categories so long as their view of who is the oppressed and who is the oppressor puts your category, the category that you belong to, in the oppressor mold. You're guilty. So that's what that's what's being done here, right? And and this is where conservatives consistently push back because it's not right. It's not just to say you're a conservative Christian, so you are literally Hitler because I can lump you and everybody else that I don't like, that I disagree with politically and theologically and socially. I can lump you all together. And if you're a nationalist, well, okay, well, Hitler was a nationalist. Therefore, you are literally Hitler. Uh, wait a second. Not so fast. Hold on. Just because I might share some ideas with, let's say, Oliver North or Ronald Reagan, or Mel Gibson, that does not mean that there is no meaningful difference or distinction between me and Ollie North, the Gipper, and Braveheart. It just, that, that, that's such a uncareful, lazy, and frankly malicious way to go about treating categories of people. Whether you're absolving them of guilt or you are ascribing guilt to them, that's just a very unbiblical, ungodly way to do it. If I were to sit down with any of those men, 
supposing they were all alive, uh, of course. I'm sure we would disagree on some important things. I would not approve of their views on some things or their way of living in some areas. And they would not agree with me in other areas. And I think it's not fair. I think it is actually very ignorant of Kristen Cobes Dumez to just lump us all in there together as though there is no debate among conservative evangelical Christians in America, as if there is no back and forth and challenging and questioning and accountability. That's just, that's just not true. That's not a true perspective. And yet it's clear from the first sentence that this is a conclusion in search of supporting evidence. This is confirmation bias through and through. The publisher's summary at audible.com reads, how did a libertine who lacks even the most basic knowledge of the Christian faith win 81% of the white evangelical vote in 2016? So that's her big beef. That's what launches her on this quest, apparently. And she's coming to the question as a feminist, as someone who pretty clearly views patriarchy as inherently toxic. So for that matter, okay, when, when you're dealing with somebody who is a Christian feminist, as they see it, who is of the left, who is happy to put all of conservative Christianity in America for the past 75 years, put all of it into a basket of deplorables and condemn it as corrupting. Not, not just that we disagree. You've corrupted the faith. Which is odd to my view, because a big part of being a conservative is that you are saying, ho, 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 hold on, not so fast. There's a reason why this tradition was started or this was passed down to us from previous generations. Certainly conservatives in the mold of Edmund Burke, who created the conservative political tradition that we are following in the modern era, what we know of as conservative political thinking, philosophy. According to Edmund Burke, a large part of why you go slow on reforming, although that is part of what you're conserving, you're conserving a tradition of reforming. Part of why you go slow on it is because some of what you're messing with and you're tinkering with is there for a good reason. And you may foolishly tear something down that is actually there to protect us and to preserve us and to bless us. And we don't have anything to replace it with. You know, so see also progressives and liberals saying, oh, it would be so great if we progressed to renewable energy. It would be so great if we switched to all electric cars, right? Gas is too expensive. Oh, just buy an electric car. Wait a second. Hold on. Let me get this straight. You threw me out of work. You destroyed my business. You caused inflation to go through the roof. Everything costs way more than it did two years ago, including fuel now. And you think I've got the money to go and buy an electric vehicle? Are you for reals? So they want to throw out the decent thing, but they don't have a realistic substitute in the meantime. So it's one of those features of conservative thinking that really does make a, a huge difference between conservatives and progressives. 
the conservative is saying, okay, in order for me to go forward, I have to first look backwards and I have to see where we've been. I have to look to previous generations and learn from what it is that they did. Did they face similar situations? They definitely didn't face exactly the same situation, but did they face very similar situations? And what can I learn from their response? What can I learn from what worked and what didn't in the historical record? And then apply that because I believe that there are universal truths that we can know better. We might not know them perfectly. We might not know them fully, even as we are fully known by God, but we can know them better. And in the process, even like I was talking with the book review of Burke's inquiry into the origin of ideas of the sublime and beautiful in yesterday's episode. Or rather, I should say, as Burke says in his preface to that book, even if we don't understand the beautiful and the sublime as concepts on the other end of this inquiry, we will at least have greater humility. And that's worth something. That is worth something, and that is important. Now, I look at Jesus and John Wayne, I'm sure, very differently than Kristen Kobes Dumez for a number of reasons, and I want to get into those real briefly. For one, I'm a man. I self-identify as a man because I am a man. Born a man, born a boy, I guess you could say, but I am now a man. Husband, father to eight, sole breadwinner. Uh, I am the patriarch of my family. And patriarchy is not a bad word, and it is not an ungodly bogeyman. I am not a bogeyman because I am the patriarch of my family. As I see it, I am an imperfect specimen. I am an imperfect representation of God's authority in my family's life. That's all the way back to the garden. God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. In the New Testament, there is no getting around the Apostle Paul saying that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. So I look at that and I say, I know that I am imperfect and I know that I don't always respond like I should and I don't always offer the leadership that I should and I don't always say what I should. Sometimes I say things I ought not to say and something I shouldn't conclude is that just because it is right for me to be an authority, therefore everything I do is correct. Everything I say is correct. Everything I think and feel in the context of that authority is correct. Nor also would the inverse follow. Namely, if you can find Kristen Kobes Dumez, if you can find instances where I have failed, where I have not lived up to the high calling that I have in Christ as a husband, as a father, as a man. It does not follow that therefore that calling is false, that I am not actually supposed to be a husband and a father and a man. Like really, like what, what is the point of cataloging all of these failures in the context of the question of why did evangelicals vote overwhelmingly for Donald Trump? What What is the point of it? Except to basically double, triple down on what Hillary Clinton said of 
Donald Trump supporters. She puts them in the basket of deplorables. I mean, I, I listen to this, and basically what I hear is, you think we are awful, sexist, misogynist, evil. We have corrupted our faith, and we have fractured this country. It's pretty, it's pretty savage. That's a pretty savage claim to make. And you're making it in a racist fashion, which is ironic because you're white. Of course, you didn't corrupt the faith and fracture the nation. No, no. You want unity, but of course on your terms, the Christian feminist terms, even though that would actually be the corruption of the faith. The historic teaching and position and doctrine of the church does not agree with your interpretation of these things, which rather than you saying, hmm, Oh, maybe that means I'm mistaken. Maybe I'm taking my cues from progressive ideology. Maybe my first love is not Jesus, if that's the case. Maybe my first love is Michel Foucault or Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Something to consider, Kristen. But, you know, there's another thing here. It occurred to me, and I was telling my wife this yesterday, as I was periodically asking her questions like, do you, do you feel like I am repressive or oppressive or do you feel like I'm a tyrant do you, do you feel like you know I, and and nobody nobody knows how imperfect I am save God like my wife and my children do they know that I am an imperfect specimen but I asked my wife I said you know do you, do you feel like I am oppressive and repressive and a tyrant she says no she told me at one point small sidebar, but she told me at one point that when she had gone to the store yesterday afternoon, she bought some frozen pizzas. And usually Saturday nights, she and the boys and Evelyn will bake uh, homemade pizzas. They'll make, you know, three or four and we'll have family movie night and watch a movie. But yesterday she was working on sewing a dress for Evelyn that Evelyn had picked out the pattern of. It was a little more complicated, a lot more complicated and time intensive, and so Lauren had bought some frozen pizzas instead of, you know, risking being overloaded, trying to make homemade pizzas. And she says, uh, "I hope that's all right." She, you know, she was telling me. I says, "Well, or no, I, what was it? There's something, something to the effect of, I hope that's okay with the patriarchy." And I said, "Well, you know, speaking for the patriarchy, I'll tell you that that's all right. That's okay." <laughs> anyway, uh, something I was telling her, though, with regards to this book, as I finished it up, is there's definitely this recurring theme throughout that the cowboy Christianity is a just, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's, you know, it, it's its the reason why all of these sex scandals, it's, it's the reason for all of these abuse of power. It's toxic masculinity. It is completely antithetical to our Christian testimony and our Christian witness. And that's been the case for 75 years as conservative evangelicals in America have embraced cowboy machismo Christianity. You know, they, they have, they've embraced something that's basically phony. It's, it's not real. It's totally fake. Not only is it fake, but it's very destructive. You know, it's 
it, it's uh, it, it's blinding evangelicals, white evangelicals in particular, to their racism and sexism and homophobia and all that. But you know, I, I told Lauren, I said, you know, I I really don't think this gal believes that there is such a thing as cowboys. I mean, like, like really, like, like it would be interesting to me if I were to get a hold of some kind of a biography and, you know, like, who, where did your ancestors come from, Kristen? When did they come to America? Where did they come from? And what part of America did they settle in? And how has that molded and shaped your view of well, America? Because I actually do come from eastern Montana. I'm, I am born and raised uh, a Montanan. I know actual, legit cowboys. Like, straight up, like, not because they listen to a lot of country music and they just, they like that as a fashion, right? Like, it's not LARPing. Like, they are legitimate cowboys. They're, you know, like, I, I don't know if I'm making sense, but but I actually, I think, <laughs> I think the author of Jesus and John Wayne holds a view of cowboys similar to the way I think of leprechauns. You know, like, okay, maybe there was a whole race of little people once upon a time. Maybe it was just, you know, like little enclaves of people suffering from dwarfism or uh, folks like the pygmies that are found in, in some places around the world. You know, maybe they just kind of lived off to themselves in Ireland and, you know, I maybe maybe they hoarded gold. I, I don't know. I, I don't know, you know, what the reason is for the myth of leprechauns, but, you know, I don't think that they exist now. And, you know, I think it's mostly just, you know, it's a fun story. And, and you know, like I would look at somebody believing that we should all dress up like leprechauns all the time, you know, not just St. Patty's Day, but, but all the time. I, I would look at somebody dressing up like a leprechaun and trying to like pattern their personality, their view of masculinity after leprechauns. I, I would look at that as absurd and ridiculous. And the tone and tenor of Kristen Cobes Dumas talking about cowboy Christianity, and literally the title of the book is Jesus and John Wayne, which she gets from a Gaithers group song that was released a number of years ago. I'd never heard it. I'd, I'm not much for the Gaithers, honestly. But, you know, she, I, she seems to think of cowboy Christians in the same way that I might think of leprechaun Christians if I found out that there was such a thing. Where it's like, well, that's silly. Like, that's absurd. What a, what a ridiculous fashion to take up, and especially if you take it seriously. Like, man, you people are crazy, right? Now, all the while, <laughs> the big difference is there are actual cowboys. Like, they're like, Cowboys are a real thing, like a, a real class of people that exist. And some of us, some of us in this country are actually descended from people that went out west and they settled the country. They founded towns and cities in the west. They came to America and they might have started out east, my ancestors on both sides. Spent a number of years, decades, centuries in Pennsylvania especially, and my mullet ancestors ended up 
moving to Montana about 100 years ago. And they were some of the first people that settled out there in the Montana Territory as it became a state. So, you know, I, I come by it honestly. Like, this is not a trope for me. I do recognize that for, it, is, it, it is LARPing for some people. I recognize that. But it isn't for me. You know, I don't wear a cowboy hat. I don't own a pair of cowboy boots. I don't need that. I'm fine. I wouldn't mind owning a nice pair of cowboy boots and a nice cowboy hat, but I don't I don't know that I feel like that would be a responsible way for me to spend the money that I can better invest in my wife and my children. <laughs> but I, I don't I don't think I don't think Kristen Cobas Dumas believes that it's a valid upbringing to have been born in the West and to be a product of the kind of people who settled that part of the country. And meanwhile, what's very likely in my mind, if I were to speculate, this is not me assuming, but I'm just I'm speculating, I would assume that Kristen's ancestors came to the coasts, either the west or the east coast, and they settled down, and they maybe came to this country with some money, and they set up shop in one of those cities, and they did well for themselves, and they established themselves by being political and having the right connections. And for however many decades or centuries her family has been here in America, they have gotten by on being the establishment on the coasts or having as their patrons the establishment types on the coasts. I mean, the, the hypocrisy of this book is so typical of the left, wherein... If men on the conservative end of the spectrum get power, they are sexist, they are racists, they are homophobes, they are oppressors, they are corrupting even the Christian faith, they are fracturing the country. Unity, unity, unity. You'll hear Biden repeat, chant, call for. But it's always unity on the terms of leftism, progressivism, the principles of the French Revolution. Not the principles of the American Revolution, but they'll throw in and rely on ignorance about our nation's founding and our nation's history and the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment and <laughs> all of the above. They'll sprinkle in references here and there as little as possible, as vaguely as possible, so as to not have to really contend with the pesky questions of, hey, wait a second. Is that true? Is that accurate? Is the claim you're making, is that... I think you just took that out of context. And actually, I think you're implying things with it that do not match the author's original intent. So who corrupted the faith? Who corrupted Christianity? Who fractured a nation? Who fractured America? She says white evangelicals, but it's a stand-in for the folks who voted for Republicans. That's what it is. I mean, you, you can try and be vague where you want to be, squishy where you want to be, really hyper-specific where you think it supports your point. But if you're the prosecuting attorney here, you're not proving your case beyond a reasonable doubt just by trotting out the fact of Mark Driscoll's scandal, Jimmy Swaggart's scandals. John Wayne saying some rude, inappropriate things. 
you're, you're not, <clears throat> you're not establishing the premise. You're just establishing that those are flawed men who said and did things that were regrettable. Now, this is not coincidentally why I make it a practice to vote based on principles. And I'm trying, I'm not saying I'm doing it perfectly, but I'm trying to make sure that my principles match what God's word says. But there's just no defending the principles of the Democrat Party. I may not always be 100% sure about every little particular issue, every specific proposal, every party platform plank, but I know for sure that infanticide is on the short list of things that God says he hates in his word. And we should not legalize it, praise it, promote it, subsidize it, protect it at all. It is indefensible. I may not know for sure that every person who has homeschooled their kids has done it for good reasons, from pure motives, in a competent fashion. I may not stand behind and support and go rah-rah, go team go, with everyone who speaks up as a homeschooler on behalf of homeschooling. I might shrink back myself and say, yeah, you know what, I don't know that that's quite true. That's pretty sloppy. That's playing fast and loose. That's you seeming to have a selfish agenda, a selfish motive. I don't, eh. But that doesn't mean homeschooling is some dark, nefarious, dubious thing. You will definitely find some examples of homeschooling done poorly, done wrong, because it's people. But that doesn't absolve public education. <laughs> you know, like you, you start looking at, okay, what are the big scandals with regards to the homeschooling movement, homeschool families, advocates of homeschooling, okay? Now do public education, okay? that See, that's what's so missing in this is it's always Republicans' fault. It's always theological conservatives' fault. It's always political conservatives' fault. It's here's, here's scandal after scandal among the folks who are defending traditional gender roles according to God's word, who are saying that a husband and father should be the head of his home. Here's scandal after scandal with regards to them sexually harassing or sexually assaulting or even raping or having affairs with men and women for years and years and years. Okay, that's awful. Now, let's talk about the left. Oh, you don't want to talk? You you ran out of time? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, so be it. I I don't find this terribly persuasive. Now, as I said at the top of this episode, there's three categories. The first category, I actually did learn some things that I didn't know. Like, for instance, the guy who founded the Willow Creek network of churches. I didn't realize that he had had some big scandal back in 2018. I don't obsessively follow like people who love tabloids. I don't obsessively follow all the news about the establishment evangelical leadership in America. In fact, very often, unless it's somebody that I really listen to a lot or read a lot, I probably have no idea because quite frankly, I don't, they don't represent me. Tim Keller does not represent me by any stretch. David Platt, I would love to give a stern talking to. And it makes my skin crawl when I see him being put on a pedestal because he's written some useful things. It's like, 
Yeah, he's also said some extremely damaging things. Like when he said he's part of the problem just by virtue of the fact that he's a white pastor. Like, what? What? No. Tim Keller might very well be a Saul Alinsky-type community organizer in the evangelical movement in America, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not accusing him, but I'm saying I suspect. And it makes me say... For that and other reasons that I can actually point to, you don't represent me. I don't trust you. Not saying you're not a Christian, but what you just said there, there, and there, totally not true. Actually extremely damaging. Very destructive. No, 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 no. The first category, things that are actually wrong, things that are actually like legitimate wrongs that happened. I think it's useful to know them, to mark them, and to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Sometimes wolves sneak in to the church dressed in sheep's clothing, and we are told to watch out for them and to rebuke them. We are told to correct them, to correct false teaching and to correct false teachers. So that's important. And you can get a benefit from reading this and having some of that knowledge relayed. Now, I wouldn't take her word for it. I wouldn't take Kristen Koba's Demesis word for it because there's a very Howard Zinn quality to this where things are implied, not always necessarily directly stated. You could get the wrong impression if you're not paying attention to the details and double-checking, verify, validate some of the things that she's pointing to as scandals. She does, I think, a good job. I didn't find anything that she talked about in terms of a specific scandal that I couldn't find supporting evidence for within a minute or two of searching. Now, her conclusions drawn from the evidence, that's a totally different subject. That's where I would not I would not rely on her at all. There's the facts, there's the evidence, the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney will all have, in a fair trial, in a fair legal system, will all have access to the same evidence but they can't both be right. The client cannot be innocent and guilty at the same time of the charge that they stand accused of. And I don't, I don't think she's correct. I, I think putting everybody in one big category like white evangelicals is a very dubious prospect in and of itself. I think it is more hurtful than it is helpful, more confusing than it is clarifying. I think what needs to happen is you take people who agree with each other broadly and you say, okay, it isn't a question of you being white evangelicals. It's a question of you being conservative Christians in America. What makes you a conservative Christian? Are you maybe going to be predominantly white? Sure. But is left guaranteed to dismiss any conservatives who happen to be black, like, let's say, Vody Bauckham. I don't hear you talking about Vody Bauckham here, by the way, interestingly enough. She did talk about Ben Carson, not that he is in the same category as a Vody Bauckham necessarily, but he definitely is a non-white evangelical type. The problem here is this besmirching of conservatives, it just never stops. You want it to stick. You want it to only be white people, or you'll throw in this smarmy, mostly white, majority white 
And if that doesn't stick, then tell us again how sexist we are. Tell us again that we're homophobic. Tell us again about toxic masculinity and the patriarchy. Now, I want to say a few things in the time that I've got left before this episode closes. With regards to toxic masculinity, I touched on this a bit in the episode one month ago today titled Toxic Masculinity, Patriarchy, and Deconstruction. So I might just have to point you back to that one for a fuller picture, give you a brief summary of some thoughts with regards to Jesus and John Wayne. Now that I have read it, I hadn't read it a month ago. I did read it yesterday. And I might need to just do a whole other episode specifically on toxic masculinity, what it is and isn't. How can we know or not? But a couple of things here. The term toxic masculinity, I don't know that I have heard or seen applied except by progressives. That's my strike one with regards to its utility. It feels like a trap from the get-go. And... We've got mouse traps all over the house right now. So I'll use that as an example. You bait a mouse trap with something that's going to smell and taste delicious to a little mouse that you're trying to get rid of. You put some peanut butter, you put a piece of cheese on a mouse trap. And that is legitimately cheese. That is legitimately peanut butter. It has nutritional value. It smells good. It tastes good. But it doesn't taste good, and it <laughs> it ceases to smell good when you going for it means that the trap snaps on you, and you're dead now, right? Can't taste it. Can't enjoy the taste of it when you're dead. So also with toxic masculinity, it's baited with a legitimate concern about men being jerks. Right, I I don't, I I don't quite frankly understand why it is we need the term toxic masculinity when we could just say, oh I don't know, that guy's a jerk. So we watched Back to the Future last night, and the left would say, the Democrats would say, the progressives would say, Kristen Kobes Dumez doubtless would say, Biff in Back to the Future is toxic masculinity. He is toxic masculinity. I look at it and I think to myself, Biff is a jerk. He's a bully. Do I need to say toxic masculinity? Why do I need a new term? Why not, as a Christian say, the way he's behaving, the way he's treating people is arrogant, rude, obnoxious, abusive, He's an abusive, bullying jerk. Why can't I say that and have that be sufficient? Why do I need the new term? Where does the new term come from? And is it a trap? I would contend that it's a trap. Because what happens when the people who are always advancing that term and using that term and they find it most useful, when they get to the macro, just like Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation, includes examples of individuals behaving badly over the past 75 years. 
and includes those individual bad behaviors to make the case that the entire conservative Christian movement is trash, is garbage. Well, so also the toxic masculinity crowd, what they do is they say, here's an example of toxic masculinity. Biff, let's say, hello, come on, McFly. They say, here's an example of toxic masculinity, and here's another, and here's another, and here's another, and here's another. And maybe masculinity is just toxic. Maybe our whole concept of masculinity is toxic. And next thing you know, all of their prescriptions for how to cure toxic masculinity or to neutralize the poison, if you will, that's in culture, that's in family, that's in the church, that's in politics, all of their solutions just so happen to involve egalitarian redistribution of power, especially from straight white men to women and minorities, and now sexual minorities, not just ethnic minorities. It's a radical redistribution of wealth and power. Now, Jesus and John Wayne, just like most examinations of toxic masculinity, is quick to point the finger to say, aha, Mark Driscoll, John MacArthur, this guy, that guy, all of their truth claims, their campaigning, their shtick, it's all a disguise for their pursuit of sex and power. And then what you say is, hey, wait a second, what are you trying to get in criticizing those guys and our whole movement and putting us all in one category? Like, what are you trying to get? Aren't you also trying to get sex and power as well? So, like, that kind of cancels out, right? Like, human beings, you have a sinful nature, I have a sinful nature, and the question is what we're going to do with it. Do we sin that grace might abound all the more? God forbid. Now, another thought on this. Why is it that masculinity especially gets toxic, I mean, why? Why Why is masculinity given toxicity, but you don't hear anything about toxic femininity, or at least I haven't. I haven't seen anybody saying, oh, toxic femininity. Now, if I were to hazard a guess, there are people out there who have said, oh, yeah, you know, we've paid way too much attention to toxic masculinity. We really need to address the problem of toxic femininity. And what they'll mean, I can almost guarantee it, if you search for toxic femininity, I haven't done this. I'm just going off of what I understand of my interactions with the term toxic masculinity. But if you do this, I'll bet you, you will find traditional views of women being beautiful, baking cookies, sewing an Easter dress for their daughter, buying some pretty perfume, some nice shoes, you know, being feminine being traditionally feminine, that that is toxic femininity because it creates these unrealistic ideals of beauty, standards of beauty that are going to make other women who don't measure up feel bad about themselves, feel insecure, can't have that. So what you're going to do is you're going to make the ladies who made you feel insecure, you're going to make them feel insecure. Yeah, because that... That'll fix it. Yeah, right, right. But you're going to psychologize the 
problem. You know, this does go back to what Carl R. Truman talks about in Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. The self was psychologized, he says. Psychology was sexualized. Sex was politicized. So what we find is we find, in the case of toxic masculinity, a pushing back against there being anything whatsoever that we're beholden to other than our imagination. Anything can be anything. Don't you dare hurt my self-esteem by telling me I didn't measure up. It's of a piece with participation trophies, as far as I'm concerned. It's a kinder, gentler, but really effeminate way to relate to men. If you say masculinity is toxic when it comes in the form of wearing a cowboy hat and cowboy boots, owning a gun, driving a pickup truck, that's toxic masculinity. If it comes in the form of working out, exercising, being physically fit, being assertive, having a strong, firm handshake, that's toxic masculinity. I mean, you you start looking at the definition of what is considered toxic masculinity, and it really does begin to look like the problem is a lot of guys who just, they don't want to be told that they need to do better and try harder. You know, and, and this isn't to say that there's nothing to be concerned about within what is known as toxic masculinity, but it is to say that that term is in and of itself toxic. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the contentions and the position and the philosophical, theological, political baggage that comes along with what immediately follows criticisms and proposals related to an embracing of this term, toxic masculinity, that is toxic. But I don't think we need to come up with psychological terms like toxic masculinity, toxic femininity. I mean, what's next? Toxic androgyny? I mean, it's just, it's people, right? Like it's it's people being sinful. And the question really should be, in the particulars, in the specifics with individuals, what are we believing? You know, if I see a guy who is working out all the time, just 24-7, just ripped as can be, but he neglects every other area of life, I say, that guy is very materialistic and vain. And when, not if, when he has relationship problems, issues in his career, when he has emotional problems because he's only taking care of his physical body, his physical fitness, but he's neglecting the whole rest of his person, I'm going to be ready to say, you know, hey, like maybe you could shift some of the time and attention you're investing into working out. Maybe you'd shift some of that into studying God's word, reading some books, writing what you're realizing about life and about these subjects you're reading about. Maybe you could spend some of this time cultivating meaningful relationships instead of just everything being on the basis of working out. You know, hey, the workaholic, you all you ever think about and talk about is work and 
that next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And you're a careerist and you're obsessed. And is that a problem of toxic masculinity? Or is that a human being with a sinful nature problem? Is that a wisdom issue? Is it sin? Well, then let's address it as sin. And let's not potentially minimize it or confuse the issue or muddy the waters. If it's a sin issue, let's not muddy the waters with some unhelpful, unnecessary term like toxic masculinity. That's what I'm saying. If it's a wisdom and folly issue, then there again, I'm not so sure we need the toxic masculinity term. I think what we could do much better by embracing is a case-by-case examination of, okay, why, right? Why are you wearing the cowboy hat and the cowboy boots? If you're wearing the cowboy hat and cowboy, cowboy boots because you are literally a cowboy and there are rattlesnakes on the Montana prairie and you're helping with roping and branding this afternoon, you're wearing a cowboy hat because it provides pretty good shade all the way around, whichever direction you're pointed, you're, whichever direction you're facing. I mean, if if that's why you're wearing cowboy hat, cowboy boots, ensemble, blue jeans, button-down shirt, because you are legit being a cowboy today, well then, <clears throat> who has any right to give you flack about that or mock you for that or imply that you can't be a decent Christian when that's your persona and that's that's who you are that's what that's how you were raised that's what you were raised to to do you're just trying to be a good steward of what it is that God's given you now on the flip side let's say you sit at a computer and you spend your work days barefoot answering the phone responding to instant messages and emails troubleshooting configuring testing deploying undeploying tweaking adjusting are you somehow obligated to let yourself go and just what have you? Or if you start working out and you start exercising, you start trying to be a strong man, even in that context, because you've got a wife and kids, because you have responsibilities before God, because you want to? Like, I mean, just be, like, are you free to? Is that toxic masculinity? If you start saying, hey, I want to work out. I want to exercise. I want to get in good shape. I want to get in good physical shape and be physically strong and have endurance and have the ability to do physical work. I don't want to lose that. It's important to me as a man. Is that toxic? I don't think so. I think that's healthy. And I don't think that we should celebrate and embrace weakness as morally superior, as if that is not toxic I think the big question is, what's your motivation? What's your reason? Is your reasoning, I want to love God and I want to love my fellow man. I want to love my neighbor. I want to love my wife and my children. I want to love the people who depend on me well. And what do I have? What gifts do I have? Oh, well, I'm a man, so I have certain gifts that not every member of my family does. I am taller for instance. I am stronger, for instance. I have more testosterone. Testosterone does stuff. Somebody breaks in. I am more physically, mentally, emotionally fit to go and answer the door 
Is that toxic masculinity? If I lean into that, I don't think so. I don't think that's a biblical way to look at it. But I think what it, what is a biblical way to look at it is to search the scriptures, see what God's word says about men. What has God told us to do and be about, to be like? Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? He says to Joshua. So we look at the criticism in closing. The criticism of Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation, scandals to the side. She does not address the question of, is it true based on God's word? She doesn't make reasoned arguments. She doesn't make biblical arguments one way or the other. And that is exactly the sort of thing that we need to be on guard for. The passive-aggressive swipe the disingenuous hypercriticism, the psychologizing of what may or may not be sin, distracting us from asking the question of, well, what does God's word say about this? What does God say is true? Also, historically, what has the position of the church been with regards to this, 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 and this? How did we get to this point where conservative Christians who celebrate the founding of this nation also, by and large, own firearms, and believe that their Christian faith carries with it certain responsibilities where civic engagement is concerned. If you would read the history of Great Britain, if you would read the history of the Protestant Reformation to the present, the evolution of conservative thought in the Christian tradition of the past 500 years since the break with the Roman Catholic Church, If you would read Augustine, for that matter, The City of God by Augustine, what you would find is a lot of Christians have grappled with the implications of the scriptures and come to the conclusion that God made men and women different for different roles, co-equal in terms of intrinsic value and worth, made in God's image, and yet not uniform in their purpose, their gifting, their personalities, their outlooks, their drives, their interests. Also, if you were to do the research on where the progressive way of thinking about theology and politics, family, work, the economy, society, culture, art, where the progressive way of thinking about these things comes from, what influences the left philosophically, theologically, you will find a great many atheists and godless men. Quite frankly, Thomas Paine, uh, he was was an atheist for all intents and purposes. He rejected the Christian faith. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was not a good man. Not a good man. Not somebody you should be taking cues from being lectured to about morality. Saul Alinsky, a bad man, dedicated his book to Satan. You're going to take your theological informed Christian faith, engagement of politics from Saul Alinsky, really? Michel Foucault, who intentionally had sex with as many men as possible when he found out that he had AIDS because he wanted to infect them with AIDS. You're going you're gonna to claim him as an influential thinker, and then you're going to lecture us about scandals and about toxic masculinity. Okay, got it. Beware.
on all sides. People are people. Don't put your faith in yourself. Lean not on your own understanding. Don't put your faith in individual stars, celebrity pastors and theologians. Don't put your faith in me either. In all your ways, acknowledge God. And the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. Start with that. Look at what he said. Look at what the scriptures testify about him. For instance, today being Easter, he is risen. And then you answer, he is risen indeed. I got to run though. That's all I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.